Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined momentarily by Saurabh Sharma, one of the up-and-coming bright young minds in the conservative movement. Saurabh has been a friend of mine for years. I am on Saurabh's advisory board for his group, American Moment. We will talk all about America Moment, and we'll continue to break down the midterm elections, which a few weeks after the fact, coming up now on a few weeks after the fact already, and it is still the topic of the day. So let's just break down a couple of items here before we dive into our conversation with Saurabh. Just a couple of election postmortem related items that are, I am currently thinking about right now and continuing to track. So as we discussed on our special postmortem episode last week, there was a lot of bling to go around here. Republicans obviously did not perform anywhere near as well as they should have based on all the relevant metrics, the numbers, even the national popular vote, which Republicans won by about 4%. You name it. They just simply underperformed. Very disappointing, devastating, no way around it. One obvious place to place a lot of the blame is what previous Josh Hammer Show guest and my friend Raheem Kassam has aptly phrased the quote-unquote Mick leadership, which is a wonderful turn of phrase by which Raheem and others who have adopted it are referring to Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and Ronna McDaniel. You see what Raheem is doing there. Their names all begin with Mick. It's actually quite clever. Now, Ronna McDaniel teased or her people kind of teased the fact that she appeared to have of the 168, I believe it is, RNC poobahs who vote to elect the RNC chair every few years. She effectively released the fact that she had support from a majority 108. I believe it is sometime in January that that vote is going to come up. In a more sane previous world, Ron McDaniel would have already resigned. She would have resigned in shame, given the fact that Republicans were so, so heavily outgunned, outfundraised, outhustled, outworked, you named it. Lee Zeldin, who lost that gubernatorial race in New York State, but is probably more responsible than anyone for the fact that the Republicans are taking over the House because of his coattails dragging four Republicans across the finish line, he is interested, is what I am hearing, in challenging Ronna McDaniel. And I think Lee has a real chance to do it. He has to basically pull away some of those persuadables of that 168 to his camp to vote against Ronna McDaniel. I am told that there are more persuadables out there than that number that was kind of put out by the McDaniel camp would lead you to believe. So we are rooting here on the Josh Hammer Show for Lee Zeldin, who is resigning his congressional seat. He resigned uh, basically in order to run for the New York gubernatorial seat. So pending the RNC position, we're not sure what Lee's next move is. He would be a wonderful RNC chairman. I think a serious upgrade over Ronna McDaniel. One other kind of post-election thing that I just want to briefly flag for you, we're going to have so much material in the coming months, in the coming year, year and a half or so in the 2024 election. I just want to very, very, very briefly 
touch on one item. So my column this past week was entitled, quote, after 2022 setback, GOP race for 2024 is wide open. And I basically was just pushing back on the idea that this thing is locked away for former President Donald Trump before it's even gone started. President Trump has, of course, announced already. He announced last Tuesday at Mar-a-Lago. He, he has done so weeks before the Georgia Senate runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. And I think a lot of folks in kind of Trump's true inner circle, the Seb Gorkas of the world, folks like that, would have you believe that it is an act of disloyalty to not bend the knee to Trump from the get-go. And in particular, you're, you're already seeing President Trump kind of take Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his, cro- in his crosshairs. There's this kind of juvenile pejorative of quote-unquote Ron DeSanctimonious, that dog won't hunt, that one is not going to stick. And just super briefly, one line that you're hearing already, those in the innermost circle, some some folks in Trump world kind of put out there, is that Governor DeSantis is a globalist, he's a chamber of commerce, kind of donor class lackey. What absolute nonsense. And I just want to very, very briefly say, first of all, Governor DeSantis obviously has not even gotten close to announcing any kind of run for 2024 yet. The guy was just reelected governor just a couple of weeks ago. But this is not a chamber of commerce lackey. Look, look at what he has done on chamber of commerce issues. He used state power in retaliatory fashion to strip an extra legal tax immunity provision from one of the state's largest employers, the Walt Disney Company. That is not a Chamber of Commerce move. His entire approach to COVID vaccine mandates, not let every business aside, but no, use state power to make sure that private enterprise cannot use COVID vaccine mandates as a fig leaf to subjugate deplorables. That is not Chamber of Commerce stuff. So this line is just not going to stick. And, you know, I I am not necessarily in Trump world circles right now, but I do have to say that I hope that those folks there come up with a better line of attack than that because that dog again is just simply not going to hunt but let's take it to a very quick break here we're going to be joined shortly by Sarab Sharma of American Moment stay with us delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe now available on digital Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. As previously mentioned, it's a special week here on the Josh Hammer Show. We have a longtime friend and someone on whose advisory board I serve. So conflict of interest. There you go. That person, of course, is Saurabh Sharma, a wunderkind of the conservative movement, you might say. He's the president of American Moments. So Saurabh, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, you're so conflicted that the millions of dollars I've been shoveling your way are are really, you know, paying dividends now. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. I've I've listened to the show a bunch of times and, and I'm a big fan. Yeah, of course. It's it's long overdue, if anything. So let's get started then with American Moment. We've discussed American Moment a little bit on this show. I've had some fellow board members such as Rachel Bovard on this show as well. You started this project, it formally launched our call in February 21, but I think you first reached out to me, it was during the summer of love, uh, and, I, and by love I mean of course the George Floyd riots and COVID lockdowns, I think it was June 2020, I remember having a Zoom call with you where you first kind of pitched me on this idea, 
And I, from what I feel as a board member, I feel like American Moment is really quite crushing it right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what American Moment is, what you have been up to for the past year and a half, and why it is so needed in the alphabet soup of conservative organizations right now? You've got the dates exactly right. Uh, we, we launched publicly in February 2021, but we had the idea in April of 2020, and, and it would have been around June when we first reached out to you. We kind of spent a month and a half tearing the idea apart and putting it back together a few times before we embarrassed anyone with a pitch. Um, but you gladly joined on. Look, the, the purpose of American Moment was very simple. The Trump administration was one extended lesson in the idea that it doesn't matter who you elect at the top of the ballot or at any point in the ballot, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people behind the scenes in American politics that actually determine what happens when you elect for X person or X role. Uh, these personnel in presidential administrations and congressional offices in public policy organizations, what have you, have an enormous influence over not only what gets implemented in D.C., but how well it's implemented. So you think about the early days of the Trump administration. President Trump wanted to restrict immigration from a bunch of uh, countries that he saw as rife with terrorism. This was known colloquially as a travel ban. But unfortunately, it was not implemented with the competence needed in order to make it pass muster judicially, uh, at least the first time. Uh, what if he had had more competent people by his side? What if the people in the room that were competent were actually ideologically aligned enough to want that policy to pass? These are the open questions of the Trump administration. They're the open questions that haunt the conservative movement. If we had enough people who are competent and aligned, what more could we get done? We exist to solve that problem, to flood D.C., with personnel who are uh, aligned with this worldview that you and others have laid out that are competent, that are of high character, so that we can actually implement these ideas that people keep running on. Well, what does it mean to be aligned? Because I use that sometimes in my day-to-day -day speaking and writing and so forth, but I'll be totally candid with you, my friend. I didn't start incorporating it into my discourse until I heard you actually start talking about it so much. So what do you mean by that? If someone on our side of the ledger is quote-unquote aligned, how do we separate someone who's aligned from not aligned? I'm fairly ecumenical. I think that I've a set of a couple different litmus tests that I pay very close attention to. The three core Trump issues were immigration, trade, and foreign policy. And if you're completely unreformed, old guard GOP on those issues, I just don't see the alignment there. So, you know, one by one, uh, in favor of a kind of foreign policy realism or restraint that would look at the foreign adventures of the past 20 years, uh, and maybe even beyond that, that the United States engaged in, say, maybe that was a bad idea, would look at this past year in Ukraine and say, actually, we shouldn't have boots on the ground in Ukraine, and we should probably be significantly less involved than we are right now. On immigration, obviously, the correct amount of illegal immigration is zero. Tom Cotton is correct about that. But also taking a look at our legal immigration regime and saying that just if, if you were to take the uh, you know, tens of millions of people that have come over the border legally and made them come into the United States through legal immigration, that doesn't necessarily make it better. Uh, it's just a, a slightly different way of doing it. Uh, what actually matters is the numbers, having fewer uh, amounts of immigration every single year. Uh, and then on economics or, or trade, um, maybe more specifically, uh, a, a recognition that libertarian economics is not a god that we worship. We worship actual god uh, and that we should uh, have an economy that works for the benefit of the broad middle of this country and uh, abandon orthodoxy on issues like uh, free trade uh, above all, or maybe even the idea that there's no role for government to play in protecting uh, you know, the, the financial integrity of families and, and some other things. A broad willingness to be more ecumenical on economics is, I think, a certain 
part of it. And then if, if there were a final bucket, I'd say culture uh, broadly understood um, in the great David French versus Sorab Amari were the idea that uh, government actually does have something to say about cultural issues, that drag queen story hour is not a blessing of liberty. It feels kind of trite at this point, uh, but a willingness to recognize that the state power has a role in creating the kind of conservative culture we would like to see, uh, whether it's what happens in public institutions like schools, but also what happens in the public square. And for the longtime listeners of this show, when you hear Sarab lay it out like that, you will recognize that it's not literally verbatim, but it is highly, highly, highly synonymous, synchronized, whatever word you want to use with what we have said on this show basically since the launch of the show. So it's really no accident, obviously, that I am on your advisory board, and this is a nice reassuring of that. So you were talking there about the Trump administration in particular, but American Moments reach as far as at least I think of it is even broader than that. I mean, you, you, you know, the goal here is not just to staff up the next Republican administration, but also just to staff up Capitol Hill offices. I'm curious, you know, have you and, and, and Nick Solheim, your, your partner in this venture, have you thought about kind of state level, kind of trying to fill kind of state governor, state ledge offices, or was it basically just too early in the project for that? We're open to it, uh, getting into the weeds on the exact method of what it is that we do. Uh, part of the reason we've been able to be very successful is we take an extremely boutique approach. Every single person that we vetted for our personnel database, has, I've spent hours with them. Uh, and then likewise, the destinations we send them, these congressional offices, these public policy organizations, or in some cases, allied businesses, we have extremely tight relationships with them as well. And so in order to do our job well, it involves really deep contact with the, the entities we're looking to engage with. That's harder to do when you don't live in a place. And so uh, realistically speaking, uh, we we are not going to end up existing in all 50 states in any near, near or medium term. Uh, occasionally, there's one-off things that we might get involved in with. You know, we've been done some stuff in Texas. We've done some stuff in a couple of other states. Um, if Carrie Lake had won her governorship, we probably would have tried to help out a little bit over there. Um, but by and large, because of the boutique nature of what we do, we're we're involved at the federal level. But look, I've I've told people before, and I'll say it here: uh, if anyone comes to me and says I'd really like to build American Moment for North Dakota, I will gladly spend plenty of time <laughs> with them and explain to them the theory behind what we do and and lessons learned. And, and send them on their merry way. Um, and so uh, ultimately, the, the, the theory behind uh, what we do is that uh, you take highly, highly, highly uh, intense networks of competent people and ruthlessly vouch for them, uh, create patronage essentially amongst each other, and you can get a lot done in politics. What role does patronage and kind of the older kind of spoil system have as far as kind of the future of this movement that you, I, and others on our side of the ledger are trying to build? You know, if I, if I think back to kind of the old Tea Party rhetoric and the old mantras of, you know, no crony capitalism and, you know, consistently railing against K Street and all of that. And to be clear, K Street is generally sordid and horrific, but uh, we really should be rethinking our entire approach to the idea of patronage, right? I'm, I was kind of happy to hear you say that word just there. Absolutely. So a couple of threads on this. Uh, one, uh, I, I don't know if he's been on the show before, but our mutual friend David Azarad always talks he about has been on the show. friends and punishing enemies. Um, you know, that that is a core of what patronage is. It's the core of what all politics is. And in the United States, you have a party that recognizes the empirical reality of patronage and power. Uh, and then you have the Republican Party and the conservative movement that pretends like everything is a Socratic dialogue of first principles and uh, about reading hundreds of pages of, of Aristotle or uh, Strauss or Burke and, and deciding what the best thing to do is. Uh, power is power is about power. Um, 
more specifically, uh, I think there's an example that I've brought to bear uh, somewhat frequently lately that that puts this in in more common parlance. Over the last 50 years, the Republican Party had a very particular relationship with one sector of the economy, the oil and gas sector. How did that relationship work? Uh, there was a polarization between uh, the parties on their approach towards that sector for reasons of incumbency. The right became the party that championed uh, the interests of the oil and gas sector. So they took their general worldview of free markets and applied it to it, but they were appropriately unprincipled in the certain areas where it may not have been beneficial. So we do have federal subsidies and programs that stabilize the price of oil. Uh, we, we valorized the idea that we were producing it in the United States. It's the one area of, of uh, in, uh, economic independence that the right was comfortable talking about. We, we talked about how great it was that they employ blue collar workers. And in return, that industry has actually been a pretty uh, serious and rigorous patron of the interests of the right of center financially, but also being part of its kind of corporate coalition that helps ensure its long-term success. That's what patronage looks like. It's not nefarious. It's something that we're very comfortable doing with this one sector, and it's been very profitable and helpful to the right's ability to actually wield power. When I think about patronage more broadly understood, what doing responsible, effective politics looks like, it involves taking that approach and applying it to new sectors. So what if we made medicine in the United States again? Or what if we tried to bring the steel manufacturers to the table, potentially even um, some labor interests and not woke industries? We need to build a durable coalition because a couple of C3s in D.C., and, uh, you know, even a silent majority is not enough to effectively wield power in politics. And, you know, I was sitting there at NatCon 3 in Miami in September when you first kind of outlined this specific focus on the oil and gas industry. And it's a really, really unique way to approach this particular problem. I, I just want, you know, I want you to have the opportunity to elaborate on that for the listeners of this podcast. So, um, Saurabh, let's just do one more question here, kind of broader level, and then we'll, let's get into the election and some of kind of the current policy fights that are affecting you and everyone else there up in up in the swamp. So uh, one thing that I think you and I also share in common, just by having arrived at a similar world worldview, is you and I both kind of came up in many ways through kind of Tea Party aligned Texas conservative circles, you might say, which is a very different way of viewing the right of center. And, you know, I have my own answer to the questions as to like, when was your like red pilling moment? When was your this moment or whatever? I'd be curious when was your, you're obviously such a young man, when was your moment or two when you realized that kind of the 2010 era Tea Party messages was not necessarily going to be the future of our movement? I think it was watching the opportunities in Texas get squandered. Right. So the Tea Party wave at the federal level was this sort of revolution with the composition of the Republican conference in, the, in Congress looked like there were some new nonprofits that cropped up some existing ones that became maybe slightly more right leaning. But in Texas, it was basically a whole scale revolution in the entire legislature and watching how that opportunity was wasted. Now, on the right, we're talking about the specific opportunity of red states, but looking at how you know, conservatives were so ineffective at gathering power that essentially the Speaker of the Texas House was elected by Democrats and a bunch of moderate Republicans every year uh, was very red pilling. And then concretely, you know, after months or years of uh, grinding out small victories, we would come to the negotiating table and what would uh, the, the most right wing Texas Republicans demand? some lower taxes, right? It just felt like a, a ton of very ineffective tactics, fighting for stuff that didn't matter all that much in a state that was essential to the 
uh, mental model and the future of the American right. And so watching that sort of ghetto essentially spiral out of control year over year. Um, I have a lot of friends that came from that space. I'm very, very grateful to them. And, and, and many of them have started thinking about these issues in new ways as well. And I've realized that uh, these social issues really are the, the opportunity uh, to, to lean on. And maybe economic libertarianism as a god is not uh, something to be valued in, 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 to an end in and of itself. But, you know, just take the transgender issue. It's now almost passe at the federal level to talk about women's sports and all this stuff. We tried to pass uh, a, a bill affecting some of this stuff in Texas in the 85th legislature, which was the uh, first half of 2017, and it failed. Uh, there are so many wasted opportunities in the grave site that is Texas politics that it sort of made me uh, much more open-minded tactically and otherwise for what should happen at the federal level. I mean, the fundamental question, we'll take it to a quick commercial break right after this. The fundamental question is, can government actually be neutral? I mean, on the one hand, you have the approach to governance, which is, you know, maximize efficiencies, maximize kind of uh, the intermediary institutions, the civic institutions of society, and let the chips fall where they may. The free trade regime, the neoliberal uniparty Washington consensus would be a prime example of that. On the other hand, you have the idea that there is no such thing as being neutral. There is no such thing as simply being an umpire in kind of John Roberts 2005 Supreme Court confirmation style fashion, and you actually have to choose. And then the question becomes, of course, what do you choose? And that, of course, is what American Moment is engaged in every day. That's what we do on this show. And we have many allies, and we are very grateful, of course, for that. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. We're here with Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, Saurabh, let's transition to the elephant in the room, of course, which is the debacle. And with some... Notable exceptions here in Florida, where I live, being one of one of them, the New York state of all states being an exception. There are some exceptions, but with those exceptions aside, the topic still remains the debacle of the 2022 midterm election. So my question to you here is very straightforward is why did we lose? What went wrong? I think there's a bunch of things that went wrong. Look, I'm a I'm a very right wing person. I dislike the leadership of the Republican Party in many cases. And so uh, but what you're not going to hear from me is kind of the conventional answer. Oh, it was all McConnell's fault. Oh, it was all McCarthy's fault, etc. Again, those may be parts of it. But I wanted to maybe throw out a couple of elements that I think people uh, should pay closer attention to because they might be things that are closer to hand in terms of an actual thing you can do about it. Um, one, there's a piece out by J.D. Vance, uh, fellow board member of American Moment with yours, uh, now Senator-elect, uh, where he talks about how hopelessly outgunned the Republican Party is financially. Uh, there was tens of millions of dollars in discrepancy in every single Senate race that mattered. Um, in, in, I think, Arizona, there was a $70 million discrepancy between Blake Masters and Mark Kelly, just an insane uh, monetary difference. Uh, there's two layers to that. One, uh, you know, the, the Republican Party uh, is not capable of raising small dollar donations at the same rate that the Democratic Party is. That has to do with the fact that maybe the Republican Party doesn't offer as compelling a message in some cases as the Democratic Party does. But secondly, and this goes to kind of a second basket, is the issue of big tech. Now, 
Republicans have been whining about big tech for the last six years and have done almost nothing about it. Even when Ken Buck brought a bill to uh, make it easier to do antitrust action against some of these big tech giants, I think you barely had like 30, maybe 40 Republicans actually willing to bite on it. The reason the big tech question matters here for the former issue I mentioned is because I think uh, your typical Republican fundraising email was delivered at a rate of a fraction of your typical Democratic one. And so each each email that didn't go through was an opportunity to raise another $5 here, another $10 here. That adds up. You take the information highway more broadly understood, the ability to get our message out there. Television is basically the only way to actually ensure that Republican voters uh, are able to hear a message. And it's one that's rapidly attenuating in value because it's extremely expensive. And B, voters are turning off the TV pretty frequently. And so until we deal with the big tech issue and are actually able to communicate with voters through the primary organ through which information is transmitted, the internet, we will lose permanently. Third, uh, there is a fundamental difference in voting culture between the right and the left. Uh, the left gets 72 election days in states that have early voting, and the right has decided that it wants to only use one. Now, some of that is for reasonable reasons. You know, post-2020, I think there was a lot of shell shock at the idea that these early uh, voting regimes are, are really bad, they're really risky. But at this point, unless someone brings to me a concrete plan on how to turn back the tide on the election system in any given state that has decided that early voting is just now the way we do things, uh, I don't want to hear about well, we're just going to wait and keep our ballots to election day. We have to bank every ballot we can as early as we can and hope and pray that that works. But we certainly can't tie our hands behind our back for 71 days. And practically speaking for your audience, why does this matter? Because on day one of early voting, your 100% of your uh, ballot universe is not voted yet. But if you did, say, 10% of your voting universe, then you'll need to advertise to 90% the next day. Your costs to advertise to your voters decreases day over day through that entire early voting period. And there really are economies that come out of that. That really matters, especially in an environment where you don't have a lot of money. Uh, fourth, and this is a more conventional answer, uh, we didn't run on anything. Uh, Mitch McConnell was very proud of the fact that we didn't run on anything. And you can't have that. It's very clear that every election is a base turnout election now. And unless we run on something, uh, the Republican base is not interested in doing so. And we need to run on a real message that's capable of winning. Uh, and then fifth, um, you know, uh, I, I do think that there is uh, an effect that exists in American politics today, which is that Republican voters only really turn out en masse when President Trump's on the ballot. And so in 2024, potentially, that's not going to be a problem. Uh, and that's great. But but we do need to answer the question of, of how we turn out voters when Republicans are on the ballot, uh, when, when Trump is not on the ballot. And I think you do that by having more compelling candidates, by having candidates that that have the, the charism and winsomeness that President Trump has. And some of it's just he's 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 the biggest um, force in the Republican Party today and still is. And people won't turn out. That's just the era of politics that we live in right now. It's a harder nut to crack, but hopefully that's a basket of, of reasons that, that explains some of the, the reasons we lost. Well, it's a very thoughtful basket. I mean, that's not kind of your typical kind of GOP consultant speak basket of they ran too hard on abortion or they ran all this other stuff that the consultants like to say. I'd be curious because you were out in Arizona. You were very active in the in the Blake Masters campaign, I think to an extent the Carrie Lake campaign as well. What did you see in Arizona that kind of helped lead you to those conclusions? Or alternatively speaking, how do you think that doing better on those buckets that you just discussed would have possibly led to different results in Arizona, given that you were just out there? Yeah, so it, I think that, 
you know, each election is so quiotic uh, that it's it's hard sometimes to uh, isolate variables. But let's compare Pennsylvania and Arizona, right? So Pennsylvania was a state that in the calculus of D.C. was a more likely state to flip than Arizona by a lot was the argument they made. Now, we'll see how the votes finally shake up. But I think in the final margin, Blake Masters will have lost by less than uh, Oz did in Pennsylvania. And in terms of a willingness to run a message, there cannot be a bigger contrast, right? Blake Masters was running on a positive agenda. Dr. Oz was running on Fetterman bad and possibly mentally ill. Uh, that was uh, a very clear contrast. Uh, Oz had millions and millions and millions of foreign money, uh, and and Blake did not. So, you know, in Arizona, you had two candidates, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, that were both running on a positive agenda. So that's not an issue, but they were both extremely outgunned as far as money goes. And that really had consequences. Arizona is not a cheap media market and it had real consequences for their ability to run. In Mark Kelly's race, he he had, I think nine figures when all said and done was spent on behalf of Mark Kelly, a truly enormous amount of money. Um, and so that was definitely an issue. And then in, in Arizona specifically, the the ballot issue, I think Arizona was, was one of the states where uh, there was the most discontent from the Republican base about how the 2020 election ran out because it was one of those last states decided there were still people holding out hopes that we'd be able to win or whatever. And so there was this concrete cultural push that was pushed on the ground there. Uh, don't vote early, vote on election day. And again, I, I understand that calculation, that experiment has failed. And it's especially uh, dead on arrival now because we will have a Democratic governor there and a Democratic secretary of state and a Democratic AG even potentially. If that's the case, the selection system is only going to get looser. So we may as well become really good at it. We need to decide that we're going to do that now and start building up the infrastructure and the tactics in order to do so. And so what I'd tell the Arizona GOP, what I'd tell any candidate running is start to prime your voters now on the idea that uh, you need to vote early and you need to spend every other day after you voted getting everyone else you can to vote as early as possible. Because next up is Kirsten Cinema, and she's going to have even more money and it's going to be an even harder lift. I do think Arizona can still be won by a Republican statewide, but it's only gotten harder now. And we have to learn the lessons on these brass tax money and, and how we vote uh, early. So the way that I formulate it, and it sounds a lot like what you just said, is it's basically a walk and chew gum at the same time approach. It's actually kind of in a weird way analogous to my approach to the administrative state, which I would hazard a guess and say is somewhat similar to your own view of the administrative state and kind of the American moment view, which is we need to use the weapon while it is there. We cannot unilaterally abandon it, but in the long term, we probably should try to potentially trim around the edges and so forth. So similarly, by kind of crass analogy to the vote by mail ballot harvesting regime, we have no choice but to play the hand that we are dealt right now. We have no choice whatsoever. You know, as Christina Pushaw tweeted recently, it looks like California Republicans actually in many congressional districts there in the L.A. Orange County area actually were able to use kind of the ballot harvesting to their advantage. And there is no reason why we cannot do that. Now, I, I should know that, I, you know, I, I'd be curious if you agree with this. I presume you do. It, it seems like the ballot harvesting regime does, by definition of where the votes are and what ballot harvesting is, disproportionately benefits kind of those high-density, urban, you know, college dorm room-style Democratic voters. We have our senior living facilities, but we have no choice but to play the hand we are dealt. While in the long term, we obviously can seek some sort of national election day, you know, minim, de minimis absentee ballots and so forth, right? But no, I, I could not agree with you more strongly about that. So, Rob, I guess looking across the the national chess field, more generally speaking, what would be, and you've hinted this a little bit, but I'd be kind of curious to get your more direct answer, what would be 
your basic response to the idea that uh, so-called ultra mega candidates, you know, brought down the Republican Party. I mean, you know, putting my cards on the table, I do not think that Doug Mastriano, for example, was a good fit for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He just wasn't. I, I mean, there's no harm in, in, in saying that. Arizona is a much more complicated case, obviously. But what is like, your general response to people who kind of criticize the outcomes from that wing, from that perspective? It's really hard to run statistics on, on candidates. Uh, what I would say is that the variable that caused people to lose was not how MAGA they were. I think it was, to the extent it was an issue, there was a product market fit issue potentially. So for instance, in Pennsylvania, I think I would have probably rather Lou Barletta win the governor's race. Why? Not because uh, I, I, I think Doug Mastriano was too pro-Trump or too ultra MAGA, because Lou Barletta actually had credibility uh, as a Pennsylvanian who understood the economic concerns that Pennsylvanians had and and was actually advancing a message that was more consonant with the blue collar tenor of that state. Uh, like him or not, that's what Fetterman tried to appeal to and he probably successfully did so. And so running Mastriano, who seemed really obsessed with uh, a bunch of uh, issues that that are very appealing online and to a very narrow portion of the base and running uh, an out-of-state television star in Dr. Oz uh, really didn't seem like the best idea in order to win over a state like Pennsylvania. Um, I think that, you know, there'll be certain figures in the establishment that are going to be looking to paint the narrative that it was the ultra-maga candidates that are the problem. J- Odea lost by a lot in Colorado. He didn't overperform in That's a good meaningful point. way. Uh, because of his anti-Trump attitude. It's not clear that that was determinative at all. Um, Carrie Lake was seen as much more closely attached to President Trump than Blake Masters, but she slightly overperformed Blake. What does that mean? Um, you know, Lee Zeldin was a Freedom Caucus member who was seen as very pro-Trump, and he got within five points of, uh, of defeating Kathy Hochul. I think that ultimately when you look at how MAGA people are, that's, that's going to be a wash. Um, you know, what, what I'm am concerned about, you know, we're about to head into a season where there will probably be an extremely ugly presidential primary at the federal level. Um, It's not really my position to say who I think should win that. We want to help whoever that person is regardless. But here's what I will say. The thing I've heard from neither camp, whether it's President Trump or DeSantis's camp, or really something that I don't think anyone's paying attention to, is go on you know, 270 to win, which is a website where you can play around with an electoral college map and tell me what exactly the plan is to get to 270. Because it doesn't matter that Ohio and Florida are both red states. It doesn't matter if you manage to keep uh, flip Arizona back and keep Georgia. Fundamentally, the electoral college runs through Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. You have to break that blue wall. You need at least one of them. And no one has explained to me what the plan for that is. And so, again, I, I do think that we need to be conservatives. We need to be culture warriors and all this stuff. But fundamentally, the Republican Party needs to have an answer to the voters in those upper Midwest Rust Belt states uh, on how exactly it intends on appealing to them. Because as of right now, I haven't seen a plan. And the voters that delivered Trump th- those states in 2016, in some cases, are just dead. The margins of 2016 are the margins of voters that have passed away and that have not been re-registered at more junior levels in order to actually ensure that Republicans win. So um, it's great that we're gaining with some Hispanics. I think that's great. But at this point, uh, doubling down on Hispanic votes, with the exception of potentially Arizona, is really just kind of gravy in the states where they're a relevant constituency. It's, it's, it's win more. And that's fine, win more. It looks really good in a state like Florida. But we really need to figure out how to get the white working class vote to turn out in 2024. And no one has explained what the plan is for that.
And it looks like the Republicans are making some inroads in the Hispanic community, to be clear. I mean, in Arizona, Carrie Lake lost the Hispanic vote statewide by, I think, a pretty narrow margin. It was under five points. Florida obviously speaks for itself. The Republicans did not make the gains I think many of us thought they would, they would continue to make to build off of Trump's 2020 performance there in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. But that fight goes on. But more important, I, I could not agree with you more that finding a way to get back into that blue wall that Donald Trump found a way to crack in 2016, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, or, or someone else, we really need to start flipping some of those states, especially as states like Arizona and Georgia, these traditionally red states just continue to get ever more purple, you know, dare I say, at least in some elections, perhaps even a light shade of blue. So Rob, I guess we'll kind of get you out of here with this question. I mean, given what you just experienced on the ground in Arizona, um, Blake Master suffering a, a, a tough loss. I mean, I know you and I were just extremely excited about his Senate candidacy. Carrie Lake was, I, I personally still can't believe Carrie Lake lost this election. Ayanna, I genuinely thought she was headed for national political superstardom. I guess we'll see if she runs again. But given all that you just experienced on the ground in Arizona and all that you kind of saw nationwide from your perch as president of American Moment, an organization that works with young, hungry, entrepreneurial teenagers, early 20-somethings who are really just trying to kind of make a difference. And ultimately, if we're just kind of being frank here, ultimately trying to salvage this republic from a decadent late stage decline. Do you find yourself optimistic or do you find yourself a little pessimistic? (laughs) And what are the reasons for that, I guess? I find myself pessimistic in the short term, optimistic in the medium term, and open-minded in the long term, (laughs) put it this way. I, I think that this it's is a very lawyerly answer, loss. by the way. So uh, editor's note, full disclosure here. Before Sarah found the American moment, I remember sitting down with you at a coffee shop near where I was living in Dallas, Texas, to try to talk about whether you should go to law school or not. So that, that was a very lawyerly answer. I feel I need to point that out. But go ahead, sir. I know. I, I, I ended up not going, thank God. But I, uh, I, I still kept some of the tendencies. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic in the short term because obviously we, we, we lost um, and uh, I'm optimistic in the long term because I think, or in the medium term, because I think that uh, there are practical lessons that can be learned from this election uh, that can even the playing field at least somewhat in the months and years to come. And I'm open-minded in the long term because ultimately the question that's before us uh, over the next few years is whether the Republican Party and the conservative movement are actually going to be useful to the country that they're trying to govern, that they're, you know, blindly waving at in order to potentially gain power. Uh, That is still an open question. I think that you can show signs of life with the election of Senator J.D. Vance. Um, The fact that, you know, someone like Kevin McCarthy said uh, before this election and is still maintaining that there will never be amnesty passed in a Republican Congress. The idea that you do have up and coming figures like Governor Ron DeSantis and and that President Trump is is still an active leader in the party and still speak sanity on these issues on a daily basis. Um, There's reasons to be uh, to believe there's signs of life, but there's also reasons to believe that uh, everything's about to get a whole lot dumber. Um, And, uh, you know, whether that's. the, the relative milquetoast quality of a lot of congressional leadership, whether that's the fact that uh, there's still so many slogged fights on, on what should be basic questions at this point, like should we send billions with no accountability to Ukraine and still kicking and screaming and getting any new Republican to vote no on that whether we should uh, actually uh, have a more sensible trade policy, whether we should withdraw from this miasm in the Middle East. Uh, there's still a lot of Republicans kicking and screaming, but the, the reason ultimately to uh, to be optimistic 
um, in the medium term is because uh, there's a generational shift coming regardless of whether or not the establishment wants it because the boomers held on to power for so long that they're just going to die sitting in the chairs that they've occupied way past their due. The question is, will the generation that replaces them be the same old with a fresh coat of paint or actually have novel perspectives in the future? And we're very interested in that question and others are as well. And uh, it is to be determined. So that's my 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 Talmudic exegesis on that question. <laughs> Well, on that exegetical note, Saurabh Sharma, it's been a pleasure, my good friend. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Josh. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Thanks to Saurabh Sharma for stopping by, of course. Saurabh's been a friend for many years now, and I was really thrilled to be a day one advisory board member for America Moment, which is one of the rare groups in the conservative group constellation that is genuinely promising, that is genuinely trying to fill a niche that other groups are not doing, that is really actually trying to do something new. And it's an important mission that I wholeheartedly believe in, and it was great to have Sarab here to talk about and also kind of break down the post-election period, the post-mortem period for us. I want to spend just a couple of minutes here at the end of our show touching on something entirely unrelated that is happening in the news right now, which is the start of the World Cup in Qatar. Now, Qatar is an interesting country. I guess that would be a polite way of understating it. And it's really, really egregious from my perspective that Qatar is hosting a World Cup. And it's egregious for many, many reasons. First of all, we have to emphasize the fact that I think the number is roughly 6,000 people, 6,000 people largely from Southeast Asia, from East Asia, from, from the Philippines, from the Asian subcontinent, from countries like India, countries like that. 6,000 people roughly died, died, literally died in, in de facto slave labor to build these stadiums in this desert Amir in the middle of the Middle East to host this grandiose tournament that, oh, by the way, Qatar bribed FIFA for, in case you forgot that detail. Qatar literally bribed for this tournament, which when Qatar was first awarded this tournament, everyone who knows anything about Qatar, their antennae went immediately up, and we all suspected this. This is an extraordinarily wealthy country. It's sitting on one of the world's, if not the world's single largest natural gas reserve. It is, a, it is a de facto slave state. The overwhelming majority of the people who live in the tiny country of Qatar are indentured servants for this incredibly, incredibly cloistered elite cabal of, of, of ruling class emirs and various other kind of Sunni Islamist scholars and jurisprudence and so forth there. But perhaps the most troubling part of Qatar from a geopolitical perspective is the extent to which Qatar funds and bankrolls Sunni Islamism and Sunni Jihad all throughout the world. Qatar is 
at this point, perhaps arguably along with Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, the world's number one bankroller of global Sunni jihad. The Muslim Brotherhood in particular, of which Hamas in the Gaza Strip is merely the Palestinian offshoot, the Muslim Brotherhood is disproportionately funded by Qatar. Qatar funds Hamas. The Israelis let it happen. It's a little complicated how that dance works. Hamas, all the grandees and poobahs of Hamas, they all have their penthouse apartments in Doha, the capital of Qatar. Qatar is responsible for funding Al Jazeera, the network. That was Osama bin Laden's favorite TV network, in case you forgot there. They spread all sorts of garbage throughout the region. The Saudis and the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, America's actual allies in that region, their actual Arab allies, hate Qatar. So very, very troubling that Qatar is hosting this tournament. And, you know, I, for one, am probably going to adjust my viewing habits in response to that, but you do as you will do when it comes to that. But we did want to briefly touch on that because it, frankly, is just something that is pissing me off right now. So, you know, uh, thank you so much once again for listening in this week. We'll catch you next time. And until then, I'm Josh Hammer. Take care. <laughs>